Schoolboys as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring, a court was told yesterday. Police investigating a child sex ring in Southend have uncovered a link to a notorious London paedophile gang. Essex local newspaper The Yellow Advertiser's tenacity yielded some astonishing results. Essex police have announced a review of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. On Wednesday, the 30th of July, 1986, a man was led into a police station in Tilbury, an industrial town in Thurrock, on the border of London and Essex. Dressed in blue trousers, a green cardigan, and mustard moccasins, he told the desk sergeant he was a self-employed ice cream salesman. His alleged offences had been committed in Thurrock, but they had taken place inside an ice cream truck carrying the branding of the famous Southend-on-Sea ice cream company, Rossi. The man told the police he was earning about £100 a week from the franchise, the equivalent of about £470 a week in today's terms. It was a living, but it was quite the step down for a man who the police knew had once been a director of multiple companies. During his ice cream round in Tilbury a week earlier, the man had encountered a nine-year-old boy and invited him on board as his helper. The boy, naturally, had been delighted, right up until the moment that the man had started sexually assaulting him. He was identified and arrested a week later, and had been brought here to Tilbury Police Station. When the desk sergeant asked the ice cream man to confirm his identity, he told the police what they already knew. He was Brian Tanner, of Westcliff-on-Sea, South End. At Chelmsford Crown Court two months later, Tanner pleaded guilty to two counts of indecent assault. The judge sentenced him to 21 months in prison. And yet, just 31 months after that court date, he was back in handcuffs, this time being escorted into South End Police Station. He had been arrested for committing what was then described as buggery on children. He had changed jobs, swapping his ice cream truck for a heavy goods vehicle, but was still living at the same Westcliff address. It was this arrest, in spring 1989, which would lead to Tanner's courtroom admission a year later that he was one of two leaders of the Shubury paedophile ring. But had he really served his sentence for the ice cream truck offences, left prison, got a new job, and in a matter of months managed to establish himself as one of the top dogs in a sprawling paedophile network? Or was it more likely that he had been involved in the network all along? Had the police, in their understandable haste to take Tanner and his ice cream van out of circulation, missed an opportunity to shut down a paedophile ring, and in doing so, condemned its victims to another three years at the mercy of some of the most prolific and dangerous sex offenders in British history. Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of Unfinished, Shubury's Lost Boys, with me, Charles Thompson. In our last episode, we heard how my three-year freedom of information battle with Essex Police had unlocked more than a thousand pages of secret documents, shedding new light on the 2016-17 reinvestigations of the Shubury paedophile ring. But in this episode, we'll hear how those documents unlocked shameful secrets about the authorities' mishandling of the case in the 1980s and 1990s. 
Among the documents disclosed by Essex Police in May this year was a copy of the only surviving records from the original case. We heard back in episode 6 how Detective Superintendent Tracy Harmon had told me in a briefing that all of the paper records were missing or destroyed, but some primitive computer records had been unearthed. What we do have is um, an old account on Holmes, and Holmes is our major incident recording system. So we're on version 16 now of Holmes, and it's developed over the years, so this was on version 1. So, But what there clearly is, is the investigation on there, and um, lots of actions raised around inquiries that need to be done. But one of the documents disclosed to me in May, written in August 2016, and titled Report on Status of Operation Sands, revealed that this was not quite the full picture. Whilst the records on the police's computer system Holmes showed that lots of actions had been raised, this report revealed that there was no evidence of any of them having ever actually been completed. Here's an excerpt from that document. It is unclear today what investigation took place, as no paperwork or court material has been found to exist from this original investigation in 1989-90. A number of police officers have been spoken to in relation to this investigation and a secondary investigation, which was placed on Holmes in 1990, which contains very limited detail and no completed actions. The materials disclosed included emails in which these computer records were discussed. Those emails showed officers talking about how these computer records had been recovered from a very rudimentary version of Holmes, which was used at the time as a skeleton database. The officers didn't know whether the failure to record the outcomes of the actions was a system shortcoming or a user error, but the result was the same. It meant that whilst lots of actions had been raised, it was a complete mystery as to whether any of them had ever actually been followed through. After my three-year battle with Essex Police, the force had handed me a quite heavily redacted version of these Holmes records. The records ran across ten pages of A4, and all names, apart from King and Tanner's, and all addresses, had been blanked out. The first thing I noticed was that the operation had been created on Holmes on July the 13th, 1990. That was a few months after King and Tanner had been jailed for their involvement in the Shubury Ring, hence the 2016 report mentioning a secondary investigation. It appeared that police officer Bob Fuel, who we heard about in earlier episodes, had followed through on his pledge to launch an investigation into the wider paedophile network. But the next thing I noticed was that this operation had been very short-lived. After it was created on July the 13th, the next entry was a week later, on July the 20th, and the final entries were on August the 1st. So there had been a very brief flurry of activity, and then, it seemed, everything had just stopped, almost as soon as it had started. The heavy redactions meant that many of the entries were essentially useless. There were lots of notes to check out individuals listed in diaries belonging to King or Tanner, but all identifying details were blanked out, so I had no way of knowing who any of them were, or where the majority of them were based. A few place names had not been blanked out, so I could see that some of these individuals were based in other parts of South End, like Leon C, and others were further afield in Essex and London, in places like Barking 
and Chigwell. There were references to drug dealers and a supplier of stolen goods linked to King and Tanner. Both men came from a murky, criminal underworld. There were other entries referencing people who outwardly might have appeared much more savoury. There were two entries by police noting that they needed to investigate teachers. One of them had been a primary school teacher, but very little other detail was given. The other was a teacher about whom concerns had been raised because he was taking children away on fishing trips. These homes entries were essentially a list of all the things police had noted down that they still needed to do. They were trying to track down an individual who they believed was being abused by a group of bus drivers. There were notes to look into other specific victims and visitors to Dennis King's flat. One entry recorded how officers had made contact with a suspected victim, but had been unable to convince him to cooperate. Police had made notes to check out at least three addresses where an unusually large number of children were seen constantly coming and going, they had also received a tip-off to speak to a lady whose ex-boyfriend had been in possession of extreme pornography. On August 1st, the entries showed they had found her, and the relevance of her information became clear. Reading between the redactions, this was a female who had been living with a male, and that male had been linked to Dennis King. Stated that had a number of films, pornographic, which she obtained from D. King, she was disgusted, is very disturbed, has nightmares and screams out for someone not to hurt him, and clearly is very frightened. She had described how this male had been sexually violent towards her and had continued his relationship with King during the time that she knew him. On one occasion, he'd even invited King to the flat for Christmas. But perhaps the most alarming of the home's entries was the longest and most detailed. It recounted an interview on July the 30th, 1990, with a victim and his mother. This child and his mother said that King had not only given people pornography, but had been actively involved in recruiting children to participate in sexual films. Here's an excerpt from the Holmes entry about their interview. At first we're quite hostile, and it's clear that in particular shares her son's inherent distrust of the police is angry that King had got away with much more than he was prosecuted for, as she says, he has only been dealt with for the tip of the iceberg. Talks of this man, according to was paying King £200 per week to provide and recruit youngsters for paedophile activity. Talks of drugs being made readily available to youngers in the Shoebury area. Also talks of young girls being in King's flat and suggested girls were being encouraged to take part in sexual activity with other men. There was a lot to take in here. King and Tanner had been convicted months earlier of running the Shubury Ring, but officers were now receiving intelligence that they were working underneath somebody else. Somebody who, according to the full homes entry, had multiple properties and was paying King £200 per week, almost £500 in today's terms to procure victims to appear in sexual films. Within some of the other, more brief Holmes entries, there were mentions of police tracking down individuals identified in photographs taken inside King's flat. This was the first I'd ever heard of police having possessed photographs of potential victims inside King's property. But then, 
Two days after this victim and his mother were interviewed, the home's entry stopped, dead. How could this be, I wondered. Surely the case had not been suddenly closed down, just as all this intelligence had started to pour in. I submitted a further Freedom of Information request to see if there were any further Holmes entries. The answer came back that there were not. This was everything. These ten pages of brief computer entries, according to Essex Police, were all that survived from two investigations into a sprawling paedophile network. Everything else, the witness statements, the interview tapes, the seized materials like King and Tanner's diaries and photographs from inside King's flat, was gone, disappeared into the information black hole described by Robin Jameson in episode 10. The same information black hole which meant that when a complainant came forward in 2016, he could not get justice because all of the records of his previous interactions with the police had been lost or destroyed. These records raised more questions than they answered. Why had the home's activity lasted little more than a week? Why had it suddenly ended right as the case was hotting up? And the timeline simply wasn't marrying up with what we already knew. We heard in episode 4 how two police officers had shown up in the middle of September 1990 on the doorstep of Doreen Pond, the assistant to Jenny Grinstead, who'd coordinated the charity sector response to the Shubury Ring. In that episode, we heard excerpts from the panicked letter that she had sent to her boss at the Children's Society, and the detailed shorthand notes she'd taken of the encounter. Here's another excerpt, which you didn't hear earlier in the series. They said that they had come as they had lots of information but no evidence on which to act. They said that Tanner would be out of prison soon and would be off again and they wanted to act quickly, as they said that King and Tanner were only a small part of what was going on. They said that they had worked on this before but had not done much lately and their boss had asked them what they had come up with so they had been trying to get some evidence for the past two weeks. They said that the Eagle Way estate was rife with drugs, prostitution and paedophiles. So why was there nothing in the Holmes records about reprising the investigation in September, or about this interview with Doreen? Had the Holmes records once existed but somehow been lost or destroyed, just like all the paper records? Or had the investigation, for some reason, been taken offline? Or might those officers have shown up on Doreen's doorstep on unofficial business? Were they mounting their own investigation, in defiance of official orders? to drop it. We may never find out. One of those two officers is dead. The other refuses to talk to me. Among the files disclosed by Essex Police earlier this year was a collection of historic paperwork pertaining to Brian Tanner's life and criminal history. Until now, we'd found out lots about Dennis King, but little about Brian Tanner. These files revealed that in 1950, at age 18, he had enlisted in the Royal Air Force, where his conduct was described as exemplary. He'd been sent to the Middle East in 1952, and was discharged in 1953, having achieved the rank of senior aircraftsman. I'd not previously known of his military connection. Might this be the origin of his link to another abuser the boys had been taken to, known to them only as the Major? Shockingly, though, the files revealed that Tanner's first sexual offence had been committed in 1946, 
four years before he was welcomed into the military, when he was just 14 years old. He'd been convicted at Southend Juvenile Court of an indecent assault on a seven-year-old boy. His next offences had not occurred until 1967, when a now 34-year-old Tanner had been convicted of two counts of receiving stolen cases of spirits. He was then working as the manager of a scrapyard. Two months after that case, for which he was fined, he was back in court in Southend, where he was convicted again, this time of receiving stolen lead. Once again, he incurred a fine. By 1969, he'd relocated up north, near Wigan, where he was again working as a scrapyard manager when he was prosecuted for helping a colleague to hide a quantity of stolen copper. He again received a fine. Eight years later, he would come to the police's attention again, and this time, for sexual offences. It was 1977, and he was back in Southend, living in Westcliff with his wife, and working as a scrap metal dealer. He was arrested over alleged sexual assaults on two boys, but there was no evidence of him having been convicted in this case. However, two years later, Tanner was arrested in Southend again, for sexually abusing boys aged between 13 and 16. On his booking form, under personality, an officer wrote, Sullen is a liar and will only admit offences when confronted with substantial evidence. Tanner was convicted the following spring of two counts of indecent assault and one count of attempted buggery. Although his case, for unexplained reasons, was transferred to Norwich, the South End Evening Echo still managed to report on it. The story appeared on the front page under the headline, Husband Jailed for Assaults on Boys. A married man from Westcliff has been jailed for indecently assaulting young boys. He committed the offences between 1976 and 1978. Mr Justice Campley told Tanner that although he believed he would not repeat the offences, it had to be made clear to those who might fall into similar temptation that they could not escape prison if caught. According to this newspaper report, Tanner's lawyer told the court that he had now stopped his paedophile behaviour and his wife was prepared to stand by him. The same thing another lawyer would claim on his behalf more than a decade later, in the Shubury case. Tanner had faced six charges in this 1979 case, but had only been convicted of three. Other paperwork linked to the case would explain why. In 1980, he would be arrested on suspicion of perverting the course of justice in relation to this 1979 prosecution, and according to his police records, he was believed to have done it before as well. After his 1979 arrest, an officer had written on Tanner's detention record, is believed to have been actively engaged in similar offences for many years, is known to have paid boy witnesses on previous occasions not to give evidence. Ironically, it would be this case, one in which Tanner was arrested for trying to cover up his abuse rather than the abuse itself, which would yield the biggest bombshell in these historic records. In his 1980 arrest record for perverting the course of justice, he was accused of acting together with another male to pay one of the boy victims to give false evidence. I noticed that on these records, Essex police, presumably by mistake, had failed to redact the name of Tanner's accomplice. So I decided to find him. And when I did, his recollections would radically alter my understanding of King and Tanner's criminal enterprise. Oh. 
it didn't take me long to find Tanner's accomplice, and in July 2021, I telephoned him. I told him I was investigating a man I believed he had once known in Southend-on-Sea, called Brian Tanner. Our telephone conversation has been recreated with an actor to protect the man's identity. I asked him what he could remember about the court case in 1981. You're going back 30 years now, I believe, from what I remember. I was about 14, 15. So how did you meet him then? What was your link to Brian Tanner? I don't know if I really want to drag all this back up again, you know. It was when I was a kid. As far as I'm concerned, it's happened. I moved on. It was a horrible time back then, and I don't want to drag it back up again. I realised what this man was telling me. He wasn't one of Tanner's fellow criminals. He was one of Tanner's victims. So, would I be right in thinking that you were somebody that Brian Tanner abused? Basically, yeah. And was it just Brian, or was it Brian and others? That other guy, Dennis, whatever his name was, he used to live in Shoebury Ness. Dennis, I believe. I don't know if that helps, but they obviously... Well, it was a few hundred pounds at the time, not to say anything. I got done for preferring the course of justice as well. So you're the recipient of the hundreds of pounds? Yeah, something like that. I can't remember what it was, but I remember that he sort of said, here's some money, change your story, because I'd already given a statement. He offered me this money, I took it, I changed my story, and then I got done. Do you have any idea why at that time it was only Tanner that was being prosecuted, not Tanner and Dennis? No idea. So the authorities had prosecuted a child victim alongside his own abuser and listed him as an accomplice. But as outrageous as that seemed, it was not a particular surprise, given everything I knew about the way that the victims and whistleblowers in the Shubri case had been treated ten years later. More surprising to me was that this victim's timeline and testimony had just radically altered my understanding of the case. According to police paperwork, this man had been abused in the late 1970s, and he had just told me that Tanner and King were already acting in concert by that point. That was a decade before they eventually appeared in court together, charged with running the Shubury Ring. In the very first episode of this series, we heard about a 1989 multi-agency meeting called by Essex Social Services where attendees were told it was likely that there was an earlier wave of boys who had already passed through the men's hands before they were caught. But the information from this new victim suggested it was more likely that there were multiple earlier waves. There was one anomaly which troubled me. King was convicted many times in and around South End, but before his 1989 arrest with Tanner, he had never given his address to the court of Shubury. His address had almost always been given as somewhere in Westcliff, and sometimes other parts of the South End borough, but never Shubury. Victim 6 had previously been the earliest known victim, with his age placing his abuse somewhere around the early 1980s, and he too had remembered King as being Shubury-based and linked to Tanner at that time, but the official records had never borne this out. I'd wondered whether he was simply confused about his age and dates, but now he was a second person saying the same thing, and his timeline was nailed down by police and court records. By the time he had served his sentence for perverting the course of justice, this victim had been an adult, so his childhood abuse by Tanner 
and his Shubury-based friend, Dennis, had to have occurred, as the police record said, in the 1970s. A few months later, I would score another Freedom of Information victory, which would unlock hitherto secret files on Dennis King, lending further credence to what Victim 6 and this new complainant were saying. These additional files would come from the National Police Chiefs Council, or the NPCC. The NPCC had, in 2019, refused to disclose its files on Dennis King, but that was before I had reported Essex Police to the Information Commissioner. That complaint had forced Essex Police to disclose its records on King and Tanner. Using that precedent, I then went back to the NPCC. It now had no choice but to follow suit and disclose its own files on Dennis King. The organization's press office confirmed that this was believed to be the first time a deceased offender's criminal record had ever been disclosed under Freedom of Information, setting a new legal precedent in the UK. There were, buried within these documents, two important pieces of information which corroborated Victim 6 and the other newly uncovered complainant from 1979. Two pieces of information which would show that King and Tanner were indeed linked, and King did indeed have Shubury connections, much earlier than was previously known. The first was an intelligence document which revealed that on two occasions in the mid-1970s, King was allowed out of prison on home leave. Both times, the home that he was released to was in High Street, Shubury Ness. So here he was, in the 1970s, linked to a Shubury address. After his release from that sentence, he was quickly arrested again in autumn 1977. In spring 1978, he was convicted at Southend Crown Court of three offences under the pseudonym David Jansen. He was convicted of assault occasioning actual bodily harm, indecent assault, and gross indecency. A few weeks after that court hearing, where he was given a four-year prison sentence, an intelligence report was written by an officer at Westcliff Police Station. There was a section on the form for the officer to list any of King's known criminal associates. The officer had listed three. Two of the names were redacted, but one was not. In March 1978, more than ten years before their eventual joint prosecution for running the Shubury Ring, Essex Police had listed in this intelligence report that a known criminal associate of Dennis King was one Brian Frederick Tanner. Having successfully won the release of King's file, I used this new precedent to go back to the NPCC and demand any files they held on Tanner, too. This would yield one further shameful secret about the authorities' handling of the Shubury case. There was one big mystery left for me about Brian Tanner. In episode 8, we heard how I had traced Dennis King's final years after his prison sentence for the Shubury case, and found that the generous plea bargain he had been handed in 1990 had inflicted misery on many more children and their families. King and Tanner, had they been convicted of the offences they were charged with and sentenced appropriately, had faced 15 years to life in prison. Instead, they had struck a cushy deal which had resulted in paltry sentences. King, I had discovered, had used the freedom afforded him by that generous deal to spend several more decades abusing children, 
he had last appeared in court charged with abusing a child just months before his 2018 death. But what had happened to Brian Tanner between his release from prison and his death around 15 years later from cancer? In late October 2021, the NPCC released Brian Tanner's file and answered that question. The file showed that during his lifetime, Brian Tanner had been convicted of 21 sexual offences and six offences involving indecent images. As we heard earlier in this episode, his first conviction was in 1946, aged 14, for sexually abusing a seven-year-old boy. But his last conviction had been in 1998, eight years after his sentence for the Shubury offences. Tanner had, by then, been living in Littlewood Close in King's Heath, Northampton. There, he had been caught in 1996 with a collection of indecent images of children, for which he was sentenced to two years in prison. That case was not covered by the local press, because it had coincided with severe flooding in Northampton, which had dominated the news at that time. But by the time Tanner was sentenced for those indecent images, he was already in prison serving a five-year sentence handed down the month before. That case was covered by the local press. The NPCC records showed that between 1996 and 1997, Tanner had groomed a series of boys and sexually abused them. He had pleaded guilty to six offences involving four boys. His crimes included indecently assaulting a boy under the age of 14, indecently assaulting a boy under the age of 16, and inciting a child to commit an act of gross indecency. The resulting press report in the Northampton Chronicle and Echo revealed that Tanner had once again been working as a lorry driver. There was no mention of how he had met the boys, but the newspaper reported that the court was told Tanner had invited them back to his home and rewarded them for sexual acts with money, cigarettes, and drinks. The press report also showed that the mitigation advanced by Tanner's barrister was almost identical to the arguments made when he had appeared in court over the Shubury paedophile ring case eight years earlier. In mitigation, Geoffrey Solomon said Tanner took total blame and responsibility for what had happened, but it was not a case in which coercion was exercised or forced. It was clear that this type of behaviour had been a lifelong problem for him, he added. When last in prison, no treatment was available to him to deal with the problem. Mr Solomon said Tanner hoped that it would now be possible for him to receive that treatment, and he appeared to be motivated to deal with the problem at this late stage in his life. He wished to cease his sexual activity with boys, and did not wish to end his days in prison, and was determined to seek assistance after his release. Precisely when Tanner got out of prison after these convictions, we don't know, but we do know that he was back on the streets by late 2002. The NPCC files reported that the police had become aware that he was travelling back to Southend at the weekends to visit his estranged wife. He died in August 2006 in a Northampton hospice from prostate cancer. Dennis King would outlive Brian Tanner by 12 years, and as we've heard, he never stopped offending. What's clear is that both men, as a direct consequence of their incredibly lenient treatment in the Shubury case, were able to ruin many more lives, to abuse more children during the period when, had they received the appropriate sentences for their crimes in Shubury, they would have been behind bars. 
Why the two men were treated so generously by the justice system in 1990 remains baffling, but everybody involved in that arrangement must live with its grim consequences on their conscience. This case may be historic, but those involved in it still live with its repercussions. The victims, the ones that aren't already dead from suicides and drug overdoses, still carry the shame and the trauma. Their families also carry that burden. The charity workers who tried to help them are still scarred by the institutional denial they experienced from the very people paid to protect these children, and the ways in which their careers were sabotaged and damaged for having the temerity to question the powers that be. One of them told me last year that she still suffered from PTSD and nightmares. King and Tanner are dead. But who knows how many of the other abusers are still alive and perhaps still active. The police have shown little interest in trying to identify those people. Last year, as we've heard, Essex Police's Professional Standards Squad found the investigation into Victim 6's allegations had been practically non-existent, with no effort made to trace other victims, nor to identify other abusers. Viable leads were never followed. So how much have attitudes in the force really changed since the 1980s? At the beginning of episode 10, I told you how in September, a former Essex police officer had been questioned over his alleged abuse of victim 6. But that was a voluntary interview. Police have never arrested him, nor searched his home, despite knowing that victim 6 was the second person in two years to accuse that former officer of child abuse. That ex-officer has now been given ample opportunity to destroy any evidence, and the likelihood of him ever being prosecuted appears slim. The officer handling Victim 6's case has told me that this retired cop is the only one of Victim 6's many abusers that the new investigation is actually looking at. There remain many unanswered questions. Why were the other abusers never pursued when boys started talking about them in 1989 and 1990? Why were so many victims never interviewed? Why does the Holmes activity suggest that the wider paedophile ring investigation was effectively shut down just days after it had been opened? Might some of the answers lie in the police records of other deceased offenders linked to King and Tanner? Perhaps. I've already sent my letters to the NPCC requesting their disclosure. But perhaps many of the mysteries of the Shubury case will remain unsolved until those who carry the secrets on their consciences decide to unburden themselves. If you are one of them, and you feel like unburdening yourself, then you can always reach me at the Archant Investigations Unit. The powers that be like to tell us how much different attitudes are nowadays that things have moved on significantly when it comes to safeguarding, compared to the 1980s and the 1990s. And yet, the modern reinvestigations of this case have been little more enthusiastic or effective than the original. If the authorities want the public to believe that attitudes really have changed, then justice must be found for Shubury's lost boys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished. It was written by me, Charles Thompson, and edited by Tom Bristow. If you'd like to support our work, please visit presspatron.com forward slash unfinishedpodcast.html. 
or money raised will help fund the costs of future episodes. If you found this episode interesting, please leave us a review on your podcast provider or mention it to a friend. Thank you.